today I welcome Richard Dickerson, Foundation Principal at the Warwick Independent Schools Foundation. In this episode, we talk about the amazing Future Forward Conference, the real challenges behind the future of education, the importance of cultural capital and benefits to school foundations. I want to talk about your role as the Foundation Principal at Warwick Independent Schools Foundation. How did you come to be in this role and describe what this role entails? The Warwick Independent Schools Foundation is a group of five schools. We have almost 3,000 pupils across our sites. We were delighted to welcome in the Kingsley School to the foundation family just over a year ago. And Kingsley is based in Leamington. The other schools are based here where I'm sat now on this 55-acre campus of uh, very leafy Warwick. And I started my headship career as head of Kings High Warwick, which is one of the schools in the foundation. I was, had a wonderful five years in that role. And then a couple of years ago, the governors decided to reorganize, if you like, how the leadership of the foundation operated and created a CEO foundation principal role. I was surprised but delighted to be appointed to that role. So my role is very different to being a head. It has been a fascinating, absolutely fascinating position to hold, partly because I like creating things. And so being the first person doing something means that you can kind of mold the role, if you like, to what are the needs. And of course, during COVID, the role of principal was a very interesting one in, in working with the schools and the heads in, I suppose, soft landings during really, really complicated times. So my role is to give strategic direction on behalf of the governors to the charity and to support the heads and the schools in being brilliant. And each school has its own flavor. Each school is very different. And, you know, this is not about a blob of education. This is about polishing each school, working with each school so that it can be the best it can be and giving that foundation, if you like, foundation role in that is creating brilliance and fantastic opportunities and wonderful outcomes for all our pupils and also creating that sense of commonality of purpose as well. Yeah, great. And yeah, I mean, managing and leading a group of schools is complex in its own right. As you say, there are, there are lots of different moving parts, different personalities, people, characters, stakeholders that kind of interoperate and collaborate at different times. I'm interested to know about obviously the vision part, the strategic part, because that's a big part of the role is to drive that leadership piece to look to the horizon and go, we're going to go this way. When setting an agenda for strategic direction, do you find that it is an easy task or is that something that you find quite difficult and you feel that others you have to bring along with you? Or are you very much, we're going that way, jump aboard? I think one of the things you have to be in this role is, to my way of thinking, is very collaborative. You also, just as like as a new head, you know, you have to listen to the institution that you're leading. Schools are variously, are they a herd of elephants? Are they an ocean-going tanker? They are mighty beasts. And to change direction requires huge skill. So what I'm doing as leader of the charity, if you like, is helping to discern the best direction for us for the future. And part of that is what I think. Part of that is what my schools think. Obviously, a huge part of it is what the governors think. And part of it is kind of reading the tea leaves for what the future may well look like. And so it's about aspiration, but it's also about being in tune 
with the organisations. Our schools are here are very different to lots of other schools locally. That we have lots of great USPs. We don't turn ourselves into something that we're not. We want to be authentically us. And the strategic journey is about polishing the authentically us. And also where the charity comes in in supporting the schools within it and what guiding lights there are there to guide us into the future. So that's really the strategic piece. And I love strategy, but also, you know, it's then delivery. So you can come up with a whole basket loads of great ideas, but then you've got to be able to deliver and have the team to deliver. And that's where the buy-in is really, really important. But if the strategy doesn't chime with your organizations, then frankly, you're stuffed. You've got to be a really good communicator. You've got to really energize your teams. But also, I think a really good strategy is something that is exciting, but feels right. So I think if you deliver a strategy that is people are scratching their heads about once you've talked about it, then it's landed wrong. You know, it's wrong. It's not going to work. It needs to feel as though there is synergy with the organization you're talking about. And the language that you use will be familiar, I think. There won't be dissonance in how you are trying to describe what you want for the future. And there'll be, hopefully, lots of excitement about it, but also a kind of a, a consensus that, yeah, this feels absolutely right for us. And we're really excited about going on that journey. The last few years have been enormously difficult. And I kind of want to talk about challenges, but not really talk about COVID, because I think we all went through a, a huge amount of challenge with that. But what would you say was being the biggest challenge that's taken on this role? You know, and how did you overcome that challenge? I think there are a couple of competing issues kicking around, really, because the, you know, we can't escape the fact that COVID was a huge challenge. And coming out of COVID and really trying to create that sense of normalcy again. I mean, it's bizarre to think that this time last year, we were still going through the iterations of what prize giving looked like. You know, how are we doing concerts? We bring year groups on, taking them off. You know, the world has changed again on its axis very quickly. And bringing everything back to normal is not as straightforward as you would think, because you've got to kind of get back into headspaces of this is how we do it. This is our kind of memory, institutional memory of how we do things. But then, you know, there is the piece around, well, it's a time to review and, and reflect and what do we want to be doing going forward. So I think one of the challenges has been to create enough kind of headspace to say, yes, this is the coming back to normal. But actually, you know, we spent two years, having got through the shock of COVID, we've spent, you know, a long time saying, blindly, we don't just go back to how we used to do things. So you spend the headspace of saying, right, okay, we are going to do something different. We are ambitious for our pupils in providing something different for them and different outcomes and preparing them for the great uncertainty, I suppose, of the future. So actually, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and do something about that. So I think one of the challenges has been kind of carving the headspace with everyone in the teams to say, right, okay, so how are we going to do this? How does that look for your school and for your pupils? So that, I think, has been a really interesting piece. The other interesting piece here has been our real desire to connect very clearly with our local community. And for us, that is the towns of Warwick and Leamington, to use this kind of post-pandemic period to do something different and to kind of, if you like, put a, a down payment in about how we want to work with the communities 
in the future. And we've done that in a couple of ways. Now, as you know, as I said earlier, my background is music and I am absolutely passionate about opportunities for children. And if we have time, you know, talking about the kind of cultural deficit and how we can support that would be really interesting, I think. But we've done two things, both around music. One, we've created something called Warwicka Singing Town, and that is putting choral music back into primary schools in the town that like it. And unsurprisingly, all the primary schools do like it. And so that's been a really great thing that we've done. And, you know, we've not badged it as Warwick Independent Schools Foundation. This isn't about sort of Lady Bountiful. This is about actually being a good player locally. And, and where can we support where there is opportunity and, and there's nothing else filling the gap, if you like, or not easily. So that's one piece. And then another piece is a partnership with the Orchestra of the Swan, which is our local professional orchestra based in Stratford. We have a residency program on site. Part of that for the local community has been having really high quality concerts in Warwick Hall. They've been sellouts. We've got our third coming up just this Saturday, which is the family concert of Peter and the Wolf. And that's been a real joy to see people coming onto site and coming and using our facilities, if you like, having the benefit of our facilities that would probably wouldn't have done in the past. So that's been fantastic. Great initiatives. And yeah, the bounce back, the memory you talked about that we humans have, it's quite difficult and we don't want to go back, but there's certain things we do want to go back to the human side. The first lockdown gave us this sense of, wow, we can do this. It's actually quite exciting. By the third one, everyone's burnt out because we weren't really designed for it. it there, there was no kind of playbook for doing this. And so we learned the hard way by just rolling up our sleeves and getting on and doing it. But the human cost to it, I think, is the bit that will be felt for a long time yet. I love the fact you're celebrating music. I think music is that place that we all connect to from a soul point of view. I mean, I'm standing behind a kind of a something I frame. My, my wife's a Killers fan, by the way. So she, she's a brand of flowers. So that's it. I think I caught that drumstick at Hammersmith Studio. So music is a big part of our life. I wonder whether or not the legacy of schools are all defined on the interests of their leaders. Because you are absolutely, your background, your love, your passion is all around music. And yet, if I spoke to probably the principal of someone who was a very good rugby player, I tend to find that their interest and their push and their drive and maybe their legacy is driven around their interests. How do you balance your obviously passion and interest, which is innate in you, with those of the greater interests, maybe of the school and the community? I think it's all about balance. So, for example, we have already really strong sports partnerships with local community and we have partnership projects where a member of staff goes in and into local schools and leads sports curriculum and we have uh, holiday action programs some of which are supported for free and also those revolve around sports so it's not it's certainly not music to the exclusion of all else but it's just like a really healthy school is all about the variety of opportunities that are there. I don't want our foundation to be stereotyped in any way, shape or form. It should be something where there is something for everyone. But there is inevitably going to be a time when you've got to turn the gas up on different things. And the music piece, okay, it is my specialism. I absolutely get that. But the music piece, I think, was hardest hit in the pandemic 
And I'm sure as people hear that, they'll be screaming at the screen saying, no, 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 there are all sorts of other things. But when we were in the world of bubbling, one of the real challenges was around music and in a way that probably wasn't the same in sports, because sport is so often year group based, whereas music, not only with the particular challenges of singing and woodwind instruments, goodness knows what, but then there's also the issue of year groups performing together. And, you know, these things were complex to mitigate. and. Certainly talking with Warwickshire Music, which is the local music service, you know, sort of pulling out post-pandemic and getting back into that normal of the instrumental lessons, which of course cost as well, and there's a cost of living crisis, and the county ensembles. You know, we want to do what we can to support all of those things. We want to be that team player to ensure that our cultural opportunities for our young people are as rich and diverse as they possibly can be. That's not to say they've all got to do the same things or anyone's got to do anything. It's really saying we just need to make sure the opportunities are there. If we can help people understand and enjoy some of those opportunities, then maybe they'll want to take them on themselves. And that, I think, is part of that kind of healthy community for the future. You obviously care about the pandemic. You were kind of using it as a pitch just to generate new ideas and things. And something that came out of it is a, is a conference that you were the catalyst behind. And at School Future Forward, it's just happened in Warwick that you ran. And the focus is on future generations where you explored five channels relating to education for enabling this next generation around curriculum innovation, cultural capital, entrepreneurship, tech, and obviously industry and business. Tell me why did you want to set this up and how did you go about convincing people that this is a good idea? How did it come about? It really came about through multiple conversations, I mean, both within the schools here, but also some local players. We are really privileged in Warwick is a very tight knit community. We have really good uh, relations with local industry, local education providers, civic Warwick as well. We were really just chewing some of these things over. And I just thought we should do something about it, really. The temptation is that lots of people have kind of a similar idea. But everyone is really busy. So how do you, you know, the moment goes, the moment passes and something else comes along to fill the headspace. So we just decided we were going to do it. And <laughs> if we were going to do it, if we were going to try and bring people together to think about what the future of education might look like, then how should we do it? And bearing in mind that there are loads of opportunities for people to think about these things. And there's Times Commission, which obviously started to push its reports out. And there are all sorts of think tanks and relatively high level studies that have come out. But it's the practical things, you know, how do you move the dial on something? You know, where is your sphere of influence as a school leader? You can't completely upend everything because there are things that are baked in. You might lobby for, but probably aren't going to change. You know, our A-level is going to change significantly. Probably not. Our GCSE is going to change significantly. Probably not, at least not in the next five or six years. I'm very happy to prove wrong on that. So in the meantime, what can you do? The schools here have been talking about this quite a lot. And Warwick School's got a new design thinking curriculum just recently accredited. They've worked with Warwick University on it and EduQual. Kings High has got a other creative thinking course and some GCSE equivalents that it's had accredited as well. So we, as an organization, we are quite forward thinking and, and trying to find those places where we can do something different. I wrote a blog 
for the conference about time, you know, time in a school. There is so much pressure on it and everybody wants to pull pupils, staff in all sorts of different directions. So you just got to be really focused on how you want to use the time that you have with your pupils. I think one of the big messages that's been coming through is that somehow we need to get this balance between knowledge and skills. And whilst it is, you know, very cliche to say, oh, you can just Google everything. Obviously, a knowledge-rich curriculum is really important. We need well-educated, knowledge-rich people for the future, but we also need them to be skills-rich. And so how do you balance the two? I've been to loads of conferences where, you know, these are the things that employers are looking for. And you kind of walk away and you think, okay, well, that's great. So we know that, but how do we actually do it? The idea of the conference was, right, well, let's try ground some of these things. So if these are, we know there's some good practice out there. So let's pull some of the good practice together as one of the streams. We know that there are all sorts of skills that industry and business are looking for. So let's pull that together and let's find some good practice there. The cultural deficit and cultural heritage, I think, is really important and can be missed. You know, if you want to go down the what skills do music and the arts bring, that's easily tickable. But actually, they bring joy. And I think joy in life is really important. And they bring joy to communities. So, you know, we need rich, vibrant, diverse communities. And joy surely has to be part of that. So how do we support that? Entrepreneurial skills. I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs. Perhaps that's what I would like to have been if I wasn't in the school. I, I think entrepreneurial skills are, are really interesting. I think there's a very interesting question there about whether they're caught or taught. I think we can learn a lot. And of course, there's been a lot of social activism over the last couple of years. I think we have activist generations and we need to support them in how to find their voice and how to effectively use their voice. And I think social entrepreneurship does have a really important part to play in that. And um, so that's why the entrepreneurial strand as well. Those were the areas that we landed on. There's tech in there too, but the tech piece isn't really, hey, this is the latest bit that you need to buy and this is what you can do with robotic arms and this is the latest AI. I think it's really about what are the practical skills and knowledge and intelligences around tech that you probably need to be teaching in your schools that your pupils will need for the future. It's very much based on those lines. Whilst that is about education for us as educators, it's also about bringing voices together from industry, business, and so on. You know, this joining the dots between sectors is hugely, hugely important. And that's something that I was really proud of that we were able to do, bringing people together who have a common interest that come from very different sectors. And then, of course, we need to talk to our young people. So, our, you know, this is about them. This isn't about being done to. This is about listening to them and supporting them. And with the benefit of wisdom that we have, you know, having gained our experience, you know, we can support that and help them in that journey. And then one of the really interesting pieces to have come out was a piece of research by one of our partners, MTM, on you know, parental attitudes to the future of education as well. So we've tried in the space of a day and a half pull together as many of those strands as possible, push out a white paper, which uh, I hope people will be really interested in, for it to be the start of something. So Future Forward isn't just a standalone event, it will be something that will uh, gain momentum over the following months and years, and we'll bring people, new cohorts back together to refine and refresh the thinking that's been started. I mean, a fantastic event, fantastic streams that you've set up. 
I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I was really glad to see the way that you position tech because I'm a tech guy, I'm a creative guy, but I also am a person, a people person, and recognize that technology will keep changing and growing exponentially and we'll get new tech and we're always in danger that we think that technology is going to solve all of our problems and we're just lazy by design and it's easy to choose it because it has a label so putting tech in a stream but looking where it can be a lever where it can enable it it cannot drive the change that we want it cannot be at the forefront it needs to be there to support our own kind of human endeavors to go this is what we should be doing now how can we bring in technology that's right and relevant of the time to enable the young men and women that we're trying to steward to get up, but also is this fundamentally changing the foundations that they have in which to do things? And yeah, I'm always fascinated. You know, I visit lots of schools and to see how poorly technology is done. You know, and it's, oh, we got the latest iPads. Oh, we're using VR in the classroom. I'm going, great, but tell me about your curriculum. What kind of content are you delivering? What year groups are you using? How does that tie into everything else? Oh, I don't know. We haven't got that much. And you then question it and go, is it a marketing gambit? Or actually, is this authentic? And we, we understand the, probably the relevance of education, the bigger picture. It feels to me that I mean, we have a Bring Your Own Device program for two of our senior schools. And it is about, and of course, there's all sorts of challenges of technology with social media and so on. So, so a lot of it is, you know, there's a huge education piece around that. But there's also about, you know, technology is an enabler. Part of it is about having your device as, as just something in your, the equivalent of a pencil in a pencil case. You know, you need to access some things. The best way to do that is through technology, but it's part of the picture. Five years ago, if you were doing something in geography and you required data from the World Health Organization, you know, that might have meant, all right, okay, we need to go and book a computer room and it's a 50-minute period, so we'll build something around that. Whereas now, you can get that data and manipulate that data just like that. In your lesson, five minutes, find the data, manipulate the data, okay, and dump the data. And you've used technology really, really productively to enhance your learning. And it has been the medium by which you get the information rather than the be all and end all of it. So I think that is really important. I mentioned Lemington earlier, and uh, Lemington is also known as Silicon Spa. It's got a huge games industry. So we have representatives of the gaming industry at the conference as well. And part of that is about the sort of different skills that you need in that sort of industry, playing to the music side again. I was heartened to hear that, you know, one of the key skills that is required are composers, because you, know, you need composers to write music for games and so on. It seems to me that, you know, the, the games industry is like sort of Hollywood from, you know, the 40s and 50s with all this kind of enormous creative musical energy going into the industry. And this is the sort of thing that you have to normalize is probably the wrong word, but to see that games, games industries is not just about technology. You know, the thing that comes out of it is a game, but the things that go into it are all these different skills and different skill sets, all parts of that kind of rich human tapestry. It's just coming out in a different form. And that's when we look at the future of work, right? What jobs and the relevancy and purpose of the career service in schools, you know, is it relevant? 
and providing the best advice or is it still stuck in the days that you and I remember? There were a limited number of professions that you could do and they were all bought by the accounting firms, the lawyers, the doctors, etc. Now, you know, I mean, you talk about gaming industry, I mean, it's, it's far bigger than Hollywood. It's far bigger than the movie industry. You know, even when it comes down to social networking, the way that the gamers interact is far bigger than any other social network, but it's never talked about. You know, we talked about social media, the big platforms, whether it's Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram. But really, when you come think about Discord and actually where gamers interact and socialize, we just don't understand because it's never really talked about. But then it's the skills. You're right. There's a musician. There's a project manager. There's a creative. There's an animator. Right. There's a storyboard artist. You've got a programmer. You've probably got a stunt artist because actually what they do is that they have to reenact these. I mean, it's phenomenal. We've probably got to educate the educators and go, wouldn't it be great if we could do something? And maybe that's, maybe that's a stream for next year's Future Forward is that we do a, I'd love to do something that's more involved with, let's, I pictured actually, we did it in a school because I, I went in and we did a kind of future thinking workshop about getting everyone to think about jobs that don't exist. And it's fascinating. I, you know, this kind of virtual landscape gardener or, you know, drone controller. But we should almost bring that together because that will then start to form a framework that can go back into schools. As, as you say, this is a greater need for us all to shape education without being so narrow. So I'm just saying that out there for next year. That sounds brilliant. Your point about career services is, is really important. And... Again, it's really about educating our young people. So we need to be well-educated. The challenge is about sort of making sure that our young people know all the options that are out there, whether that's university, whether it's apprentice schemes, graduate entry, you know, all sorts of routes, whether it's university abroad rather than in the UK. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It is enormous as well as an enterprise and an, an undertaking. And again, it's somewhere where there's a real benefit in being part of the foundation of schools because there is so much expertise in each school that can be shared and pooled to the benefit of all our pupils. I think one of the challenges is that we have to educate parents as well about what all these things mean. Because for my parents, it was degree, profession, and on you go. That's what you do for the rest of your life, pretty much. And you might refine what you do. So you might, you know, as I've done, you know, I started my life teaching music and I'm now leading a school, but I'm in the same industry, if you like, the same business, the same sphere of work. But that's just not the case anymore. And I think the parents need help with that for us to talk openly about what it is and what the world is likely to be for their children. And therefore, this is how we are trying to equip them for that world. And, uh, you know, looking at some of the amazing opportunities that are out there that aren't about university, but maybe about uh, degree apprenticeships or, or apprenticeships more broadly. They're fantastic opportunities. And, and we just need to make sure that everybody is aware of them before they make their choices. And that's incredibly difficult. We're worse role models. We're very time poor. We're addicted to devices, more probably so than our children. Trying to be present, I think, is a, is a challenge. And then, you know, it's, it's rolling the dice and taking risks of your child's future. Because you know, I sit in this seat and you know, I've been talking about the future of education for probably about 10 years now, trying to be a provocateur on those ideas. I've got four kids at four schools. But when push came to the shove, my daughter, she's now at the first year at university, it was, well, no, you know, you've got to get good A-levels. Right? It's just, 
you know, that's what you want to do because that's the way she was in that education. And then she went off to a good Russell Group University, right? These are my own pre-bias sets. And I'm now looking at with my son, who's in lower six, well, lower six, year 12. And, you know, he wants to be an actor. So, you know, he's doing very different subjects. But again, where does he go? And we've used these, you talk about the data set about the future of work and what you could do. There are these great data sets. I think there's some careers libraries that actually have all of these things. You put in all your interests and it spurts out, which is brilliant. I love to see that. But it's still not enough. There's still not enough what I'm going to call really forward-thinking careers, like the ones you just talked about. If you were to break down a gaming, you know, to create a game, there are some incredible jobs you could do, but nobody knows that at age 16. And imagine those ones you go, do you know what? You could actually be a digital artist or you could do all the design costumes for a game. Then it becomes a very different place. So I suppose, yeah, you, we've got to train the parents and educate the parents, but, but where do we start? Well, we had a, a, several years ago, we did some work when I was head at King's High, we did some work with Arup on designing a dashboard for a driverless car. We did it with all the year 10 cohorts of girls. And I think it's fair to say there were some girls who were thinking, well, you know, I'm not really into STEM, you know, and I'm not entirely sure what I can contribute or really how interested I am in this driverless car. But Arup positioned it, you know, incredibly skillfully, as you would expect, because what actually came out of it was that the team that was required, yes, did require an engineer. It started with the question of, why would you design a driverless car? Who, who actually is going to benefit from a driverless car? So that was the first question. Of course, that's a very creative question. And then, you know, your engineer works through the mechanical bit of it. You know, for the dashboard, it needs to be designed. You know, so who, who is it for? And that's going to influence how it is designed. Then it's got to be created. Then it's got to be marketed. You know, it is a whole team of people with very, very different skills. That, for us, was quite a good way of educating our young people about those sorts of careers. And maybe that is a model that can be used elsewhere as well to actually get a hands-on idea of this is actually, this is, this is how it all works and what my role may well be in it. It's real-world problem-solving, right? Give them a problem, and then how can we actually bring all of these skills into one? And I think, actually, it's something that you're already doing. And I love the fact that tied to your the Future Forward conference, is the year 12 Jubilee Conference, which is, I mean, it's it's a brilliant initiative. And I think we need to elevate that as well. And I'll certainly promote it. But it's all recognizing an event of the last 70 years and what the Queen has been through. And then future looking forward 70 years. That's brilliant. And getting them to think in the same time span, what would life look like over the next 70 years? And that's something, again, is going to be student-led. Was this something that came out of the brain sort of storming that you had for the whole conference and were the kids involved so that came from who do we want to who do we want to work with who are we trying to speak to what are we trying to do and when we were doing our brainstorming of this last summer you know where were children in this and where were our young people in this and so the deputy head who looks after teaching and learning at warwick school i was absolutely passionate about putting this part of the conference on for young people for their skills and their development and it's you know it just the whole thing just sits so well together. I think it all clicks in. It's about our young people. It's about us, future employers, thinking about our young people. But our young people are absolutely at the, the heart of it, be it talking to us or be it actually doing practical things to work together. And also there is a great number of schools working together on year 12 conference as well. So it is just the most exciting thing to be happening. 
our time is nearly up and I know I can see that you and I could talk for hours and hours on this stuff. I just kind of want to leave with maybe just to get your thoughts on what is the future of education and will it substantially change from what it's now or will we carry on talking and having good conferences and having great ideas, but we're really just going to wait for our kids to change the world? We have to find ways to enable them to change the world. That fundamentally, I talked a moment ago about things that are taught and things that are caught. So the court bit is about the culture of our schools and the ethos of our schools. The taught bit is prioritizing, finding a way of prioritizing skills teaching alongside the knowledge-based teaching and working really closely with those who create public policy to try and move the dial a little bit on how those things might be assessed or what the 16 and 18 routes end up looking like. You know, that public policy bit is a very, I think it's a very, very, you know, it's going to be a very long haul. You know, we are deeply ingrained in our psyche nationally is the 16 plus examination and the 18 plus you know, examination. And I'm not saying that those things are wrong at all. Um, I mean, we could debate for hours, you know, how many GCSEs should you have? Is it eight because progress eight? Is it nine? Is it 10? Is it worth having 11 or 12? You know, is it, should it be a competition for how many you can accrue? The answer to that, by the way, is no, it should not be a competition for how many you can accrue. But I think if I was to start again with all of this, with you know, my career and you know, how we approach education, I think I would start far further away in what do we want our society to look like? What are the features and characteristics that we want it to be? And given the fact that we are in such a privileged position of working with young people, how do we help them to create a better society? And that's on their own terms as well. That's not, it's not sort of a dictatorial kind of approach to this is what society should be. If we can land on you know, the broad brushes of how we want to be living our lives, then we need to enable young people to develop that in their lives. And it's finding ways of finding their voice. How do we help them to safely and productively carefully nurture their voice so that they can make a difference. They desperately want to make a difference. That's my reading of the current generations. They really want to make a difference, but how do they do it? They need our help to enable them to do it. And that's the end game of education, isn't it? You know, it's about whatever skills that you have in your schools, you develop them. Everybody's different. We don't want a, a society where, which is just kind of uniform, but we do want well-skilled, committed citizenship. And that, I think, is what I would want for our young people to know that that's how they can make the difference in the future. Well, I'm sure all of your students and all your staff that work for you are always inspired. I have been the last hour chatting to you, so thanks ever so much, Richard. And yeah, I look forward to further collaborations. Thank you, Simon, very much indeed. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.